love one another. Something that's easy enough for most of us to say, but is it something we practice? Or do we want to throttle those who get in the way? Today's reading is from James chapter 5 and from verse 13, and it's on page 1216, if you want to follow it in the church Bibles, 1216. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, most of this passage needs virtually no explanation. There are plenty of Bible passages that need substantial research. Where the culture of the times needs to be understood, the language needs to be clarified, the context needs to be realized. I used to sell a book uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a thick, heavy, hardbound book of 376 pages based on just three or four verses from Ephesians. Now, I haven't read it, so I don't know how deeply he goes into it, but I think it would be quite unnecessary to go into the same detail on this passage today. Overall, it just makes sense. It speaks for itself. When the passage was first read out to the early church, those listening would have heard and understood the words just in the same way that you and I have today. There's nothing cultural to consider. Is anyone in trouble? Well, then pray. Is anyone happy? Then sing. Is anyone sick? Ask others to pray for you and anoint you with oil. Now, anointing with oil, is that important? Having said we don't really need to understand the culture of the time, there's an interesting ancient explanation for the origins of anointing with oil. Lice and other insects would often get into the wool of sheep. And when they got near the sheep's head, they would burrow into the sheep's ear and could kill the sheep. So apparently ancient shepherds would pour oil over the sheep's head. I've read that this would make the, the wool slippery and the, the, the insects would slip off. But I would imagine also it would make the wool very matted with the oil and the insects just couldn't get through. But from this practice, anointing with oil became symbolic of blessing, protection, and empowerment. The oil isn't a magic potion. The oil itself doesn't have any power. It's God who anoints a person for a specific purpose. When we use oil in church today, it's only a symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, and not the oil, will raise them up. Of course, on a more practical level, oil can be used to be rubbed into an area of pain for relief. And some people would claim that in this particular passage, the reference to anointing of oil was talking of massage. To me, that's a bizarre watering down of scripture. I don't think James is saying, ask people to pray for you and give you a massage. The prayer in, offered in faith will make you well. The Lord will raise you up. 
if we've, if we've sinned, we'll be forgiven. The Bible often links sickness and sin together. Remember the paralyzed man who was lowered down through the roof to be healed by Jesus in Luke chapter 5. The first thing that Jesus said was, Friends, your sins are forgiven. Then he told the man to get up and walk home. He never even pronounced any healing. He didn't lay hands on him. He didn't anoint him with oil, nothing. It seemed all the man needed was for his sins to be forgiven. It was his sin that had paralyzed him. I remember hearing Barry Kissel, who was one of the leaders at the New Wine Conference, talking about a man who was crippled and bent over in pain, who came forward to ask for prayer for healing. And Barry just felt that God prompted him to suggest the man ask for for forgiveness. And as he did so, Barry watched as this man's distorted body just unraveled. And he was able to stand up for the first time in years and move his arms around and jump for joy. But of course, there's also a danger of labeling all illness as a result of sin. I know people who've been really hurt terribly by those who've accused them of not repenting enough or not having enough faith to be healed. I was in a church years ago where the vicar died of cancer. His illness and death caused an unpleasant rift in the church. Some feeling that others were not standing firm enough against the devil to cast out the disease, while others felt the family just needed gentle support, space and care. Confess sins to one another, pray for one another that we may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Confess sins to one another. This doesn't say that we should go into a confessional booth and speak anonymously to a priest, but that we should confess to one another. But there I want to go back to where we started, love one another. Because we don't want to go confessing sins to those who will judge us, criticize us, and gossip about us. There needs to be trust gained through love. Confess our sins. Commentators do not believe this means that we should bear all to everyone. I mean, can you imagine if we all queued up at the front here to share our sins? It would become quite boring, I suspect, by the end. Although it might be quite reassuring to find that we're all as bad as each other. But this passage is not talking about that. Having said that, public wrongdoings that have hurt or tainted the church should be confessed before the whole church. And James expects us to confess to any individuals that our sins have injured. Just as we should apologize if we hurt someone physically, we need to be aware of times when we've hurt someone emotionally or spiritually. There's also a place for us to confess to godly intercessors who will provide prayer and wise counsel. We have a team of folk trained to listen and pray with us when we require, and they will be available today, as always, at the end of the service. We need to use discretion. For example, if you've never liked me since you first saw me, it might not be appropriate to come and tell me. It would be better, perhaps, to try to get and make an effort to get to know me first. Remember, I said that James expects us to confess to any individual that our sins have injured. But if the person isn't aware they've been sinned against, it might not be wise to tell them. This, I would suggest, is an area where it would be advisable to talk to someone you can trust about the situation first. Maybe the prayer team here. They can pray with you and seek God's way forward for you.
If we come to the front for prayer, no one needs to know if we're asking for prayer for healing, for forgiveness, about a choice we have to make, or anything else we want to bring before God. So there's no reason to think that people are going to think you've coming forward for some dreadful sin that you want to confess. In fact, you don't even need to tell the prayer team what you want prayer for if you don't want to. Just ask them to pray. They'll respect your, your request and they won't probe. God isn't wanting to expose our sins and problems. He loves us unconditionally and he wants to help us grow more and more like him. Beverly spotted this comment from a lady called Cynthia Borgio, referring to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And she says, love bears all things, but this does not mean a dreary sort of putting up with, as in not putting up with each other's irritating habits. She goes on, there are two meanings of the word bear, and they both apply. The first means to hold up, to sustain, like a bearing wall which carries the weight of the house. Love holds up and sustains. Love is strong. You might say, she goes on to say, this is its feminine meaning. Sorry, its masculine meaning. Its feminine meaning is this. To bear means to give birth, to be fruitful. So love is that which in any situation is the most life-giving and fruitful. We need to be a community of integrity and love. What we provide for one another should be the most life-giving and fruitful, building one another up. We also need to be good listeners. The sketch we had uh, delivered to us so brilliantly earlier was from a Christian drama group, Riding Lights, which... um, They they used to do around about the late 1970s. And around the same time, they did another sketch about a fellow. And I I feel, if you'll excuse me, his name was Nigel. Can't see him. He's over there. Um, But he arrives at his church home group meeting. The host opens the door. Oh, Nigel, come in. How are you? Well, actually, I've been having a a bit of a difficult... Great, come on in then. Coffee, one sugar, is it? Yes, great, I'll put the kettle on. The doorbell rings. Oh, open the door, will you, Nigel? So Nigel turns and opens the door to a young couple. Oh, hi, Nigel, how are you? Well, actually, I was just telling Brian. Praise the Lord, we're so blessed, aren't we? And the evening continues in the same vein until I think in the end Nigel is able to tell everyone that he's been diagnosed with cancer. Do we really want to hear an answer when we ask how someone is? Do we really care? Perhaps we shouldn't ask if we're not prepared to listen. Sometimes we ask, and then we immediately want to provide a solution. I think that may be just a man thing, or at least it is in our house. (laughs) But I've also experienced the negative side of that myself. When I was in a home group back in London many years ago, I shared my concern that I felt I was failing God in some way. I don't remember the details. It might have been that I was lacking discipline to have a daily quiet time with God. But I was immediately told, oh, don't think like that. You're a much better Christian than the rest of us. But they weren't actually listening to me, trying to sweep what I saw as a problem under the carpet. Excuse me.
what I had wanted was a challenge. People to be accountable to. People who would follow me up the following week. How are your quiet times, Andrew? So, confess your sins to one another requires understanding on all sides. We need to be able to trust those we share intimate things with. Love is a two-way thing. Give and take. Some people find it easy to give, but really hard to receive. It can sometimes be painful or embarrassing to ask for help. But in love, we should be able to ask for help as much as offer it. The healthy New Testament model for the church was Acts 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. It was a great model. But the impression from the rest of the New Testament was that it didn't last as positively as it started. Almost immediately, Ananias and Sapphira were caught lying to the apostles and to God. Then we read of all kinds of difficulties in Paul's letters. So the model of the early church is not even something they could hold on to for long and wouldn't be easy to follow today. But we can all do our bit. I've talked before about trying to make small changes 1% at a time. Try a little bit harder to listen, a little bit harder to care, to look out for the needs of others, not to criticize or get involved in gossip. Try to behave with more integrity, honesty, and love. Think before we speak. Make an effort to begin to change our bad habits and attitudes. Many churches talk of all-member ministry, yet when it comes down to it, not all members want to get involved. Is there something, somewhere that you could make a positive contribution to the life of the church or in the community around? I'm not an evangelist, but my hope and prayer is that my behavior makes a difference to those I'm in contact with. When people see me, I I hope they see Jesus in me. When they see NBC, my hope is that they see a community of caring, loving people who would have time for them when they have a need. When we look around church, we're all Christians, Christians. We've adopted his name as part of our identity. He loves each one of us. He wants us to love each other as well. It isn't always easy, but we need to be willing to work at it. Steve encouraged us a few weeks ago to sit somewhere different in church, to sit next to someone different. It wasn't easy moving around out of our comfort zone, but it was a great first step. Can we try to get to know some more new people? rather than always sitting with the same friends. Now, I have a kind of epilogue now. I've been preparing, praying, and thinking about this sermon for a few weeks. And a couple of weeks ago, I felt that it was basically complete. But as many of you know, my work involves selling Christian books at conferences around the country. And about 10 days ago, I was in Birmingham at a conference where people kept picking up this book. And they were asking me if it was any good. And I was saying, well, I haven't read it yet, but it looks quite good. I'd be interested to read it. So I thought afterwards, I'd better start reading it. And something early in the book seemed relevant to the sermon today. But more specifically, I felt God was prompting me that it might be important for someone here today to hear. So I've actually cut out a lot of what I was going to say this morning because I wanted to have time to share a little bit about this book and to leave time for ministry at the end. 
Over the past 40 years of selling Christian books, I don't know how many hundreds of books I've read. Every now and again, one strikes me more powerfully than the others. And this is one of those. I thought it was about this woman, Crystal McVeigh, and how she died and went to heaven. Um, it, is, it does say what dying taught me about living. But actually it transpires that that was in her previous book. Fortunately, she summarizes that experience at the beginning of this book. But this actual book is about what happened next. How experiencing a taste of heaven just for nine minutes when she died on, uh, uh, in a uh, hospital... It's just affected the way she lives now in such a dramatic way. She just wants to give, 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 love, love, love wherever she goes. Some of her experiences have been staggering. She's got involved with the poor, the homeless, with prostitutes and striptease artists. There aren't the really dramatic supernatural miracles, but just the gentle touch of love on her and those that she comes in contact with. Her experience hasn't made her perfect, and she talks of some of her failings. Last week, Peter was talking to us on judging people. And Crystal volunteers in this book to help with a team visiting the red light district. When she arrives at the place they're supposed to meet up, she sees some quite scary-looking people hanging around on the street corners. And she decides to stay in her car out of the way until she sees the lady who's leading the team arrive. She goes nervously over to this lady only to be introduced to all the people she was frightened of as the rest of the Christian team. <laughs> now, I hope no one here has actually gone through... Do you know I'm going to get emotional? <laughs> I can feel it coming on. <laughs> I hope people haven't... Oh, dear. <laughs> I hope people haven't gone through all the things that she's gone through in this book. Um... But there could be some things that have affected you. She had a very difficult life. Her parents divorced when she was two years old. Her stepfather was involved with drugs and alcohol. He once shot a gun at her. She thinks deliberately to miss her, but to frighten her mother. She was sexually abused over and over from the age of three. She thought it was her fault. She felt completely dirty and broken. She tried to kill herself when she was 13. She turned to alcohol and drugs. As a teenager, she had an abortion. She wasn't sure if God existed, but she was sure he couldn't love her if he did. But having married a loving, caring Christian man, she gradually moved closer to God. But then 10 years ago, she became ill and was given the wrong amounts of painkillers in hospital. Her heart stopped for nine minutes. In those nine minutes, she experienced heaven, and she writes. In that moment, standing in the beautiful glow of heaven, I realized I was the most perfect version of myself. The eternal me, free of all the doubts, fears, and insecurities... I felt certain of how I fit into the vast and beautiful universe created by the same God who breathed life into me. In heaven, we get to meet our true selves for the first time. I also felt something that I hadn't felt on earth since the age of three. 
I felt clean. I was bathed in the most beautiful, brilliant light that could possibly exist. So white and pure, so cleansing, that it is far beyond any earthly understanding we might have of light and brightness. Being in this light infused me with a sense of purity, cleanliness and perfection, not to mention love, joy and happiness. The light was something I could not only see but also feel. The light became a part of me, and I became a part of the light. The light was where I belonged, where we all belong. I knew I was home. Then, coming face to face with God, she says, without hesitation, I collapsed in worship of him. Not like I worshipped him in church by singing or mouthing the words to a prayer. No, I truly worshipped him. I wished to to devote every last fibre of my being to worshipping him. And though on earth I had so many questions I wanted to ask, where were you when I was abused? Why didn't you protect me? Why do you let so many bad things happen to your children in heaven? Outstretched before him and in complete and utter awe of him, I had only one simple question for God. Why didn't I do more for you? Happy, let them sing songs of praise.